Okay, we're going to read the Bible now. Um, we're reading from Matthew chapter 13. So if you have a Bible with you, you can whip that out. Otherwise, it should come up on the screen behind me. So we're reading from Matthew chapter 13 and just reading verse 44. So Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Well, good morning and welcome. My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. Really good to have you with us. Whether you come to church week in and week out, or whether this is your first time here with us, or even the first time in a church community, and really whether you describe yourself as a, a follower of Jesus, or whether you're someone who's maybe would describe yourself as spiritually seeking, or even someone you would describe themselves as kind of cynical, I think it's great to be here this morning because we're asking a question that everyone should be asking, which is, what is life actually about? And the last two weeks, we looked at the question of, is there more to life than a good time? Uh, The week after that, we looked at, is there more to life than wealth? And then this week, we're looking at, is there more to life than finding the one? And I'm just coming off the back of having run three weddings in three weekends, so I feel reasonably qualified to go at this topic. But the reason it's so significant is that I think everyone, regardless of who you are, has some kind of vision of what a good life would look like. And it's usually a collage of good things with a lack of bad things. And the combination of those is what we'd sort of vaguely assume would be a life that we'd want to live. But everyone also has just one thing that above all other things they believe would be central to living a meaningful and happy life. And this isn't like a new thought. Aristotle, you know, the ancient Greek philosopher, called it the summer bonum, the greatest good. And the easiest way to understand it is like this. If your life is like a solar system, all of the planets represent all the different parts of a good life, I don't know, relationships, career, education, where you live, all that sort of stuff. But right in the middle will be a sun, something that is absolutely central, the thing that you cannot live without, and the thing that relativizes everything else around it, the thing that really is central and that all other things orbit around. That is the thing that we want more than anything else. And when people consider what that thing is, the thing that might be absolutely central to a good life, one of the most common answers, whether just intuitively or even subconsciously, is a relationship. That seems like an obvious answer. And there's a reason to this, that many of our poets and artists have kind of versed what what is kind of the central cry of the human heart, that is, we we feel this deep need to be loved. Raymond Carver was a a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, and towards the end of his life, he penned a very short poem. And so it's easy to get through, but in it, he probably, after all his writing and thinking, captures what he thinks life is ultimately about. And he writes this, it'll come up on the screen for you. The poem runs this way, it says, And did you get what you wanted from this life, even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. He sums up life in this way. The most important thing is to to be loved and to know that you are loved. It's not so much about making money or doing extraordinary things. In fact, often the tragedy of people who've done extraordinary things is that they were not extraordinary people. There are many people whose life tells the story of someone who is loved by millions and yet despised by the people who are closest to them. And so here, Carver sums it up by saying, this is what we want, 
to have some kind of sense, a sure sense, that we were loved. And not just by anyone, uh, like by a group of people generally, or even by family and friends broadly, but usually for this to be concentrated in a single relationship. That's why Dean Martin, in his classic song, which sums up so much of our pop culture songs, he wrote, You're nobody until somebody loves you. That's a heavy line. But the song goes like this, You're nobody till someone loves you. You're nobody till somebody cares. You might be the king, you might possess the world and its gold, but gold won't bring you happiness when you're old. The world is still the same. You'll never change it. It's a bit bleak. As sure as stars shine above, you're nobody until somebody loves you, so find yourself someone to love. You kind of get the idea of it. It's like, look, money is not going to bring you happiness. The world, you, you can't really have an impact on it. Forget all of that. But if you can just find someone to love and to love you, that's a life worth living. And so it's built in us this idea, this desire that like, we have to find the one. That yeah, you can do all this other stuff and that's helpful. That's, that's sort of the other planets in the solar system. But unless you get something that's the sun, it's, you're really going to be missing something at the center of your life. And so often we're looking for the one. And this explains so much of, of our dating culture. It explains things like the phenomenon called apocalypsing. You might, you might be familiar with that term, you might not be. Even if you don't know the term, you are aware of the actual phenomenon. Apocalypsing is when a relationship goes from like zero to a million almost overnight. When they go from strangers to spending almost every waking moment together like that. And the reason it's called apocalypsing is it's like they're dating as though the world is about to end. Like this is their last chance at happiness and a relationship. And so things just kick off way too fast. And it's like that situation where you thought you had a friend and then suddenly you don't. You don't know where they've gone. They've dived deep into this relationship and they've apocalypsed. That's sort of how it goes. But it also explains the phenomenon of, of love as addiction. I don't know if it's just my, like my impression, but I feel like every second song by a young male artist is kind of this sort of self-loathing, self-excusing kind of, yeah, like you can't trust me, I'll probably ruin your life and cheat on you, but I can't live without you. And then it's got its corresponding songs of like, yeah, you've hurt me, but I can't live without you either. And you're just like, both of you could do without each other. <laughs> but I imagine the reason, whether or not that actually reflects the artist's actual experience is probably irrelevant. They know that it lands because that must be so many of our experiences. And what would explain this? Why would we endure such torrid relationships? Because the belief is we've got to find the one. That if I don't, life's not going to matter. I need to do it. I need to go through this even though it's painful and difficult because I need to find the one. And why is it that the one has become such a significant thing? See, because it's so much a part of our cultural moment, we just imagine that this is how things have been throughout time. But it's not actually the case. The reason the one has become such a significant part of our cultural life is no accident. See, we are a culture that you would describe as not so much post-religious, but certainly post-Christian. And what that means, just to be clear, is not that everyone used to be Christian and now they're, they're not, but that actually, if you wound back the clock like 100 years and you ask people, is there a God? 99% of people would have said yes. And if you ask them who that God was or what they were like, they would have been roughly describing the God of the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean that they went to church or had a, an actual faith or anything like that personally, but that's what it meant to, for there to be a kind of a, a generally you know, belief in the Christian God. 
But over time, we've become more secular and we've moved away from the sense of God. And with this has come certain cultural implications as well. What it's meant is that we no longer look for meaning or significance or identity or purpose in a God or gods. Or if, when, when life hits rock bottom, we're not kind of wandering into a church necessarily. And so we're looking for meaning and significance in the here and now. And one of the most obvious answers to that, after we kind of left behind the answer that it might be God or a God or gods, was that, that it would be a romantic partner. Ernest Becker uh, wrote a book, uh, he's a, a secular psychologist, and he made this observation about why it is that the one has become so significant for us. It'll come up on the screen. He says, Mankind still needed to feel heroic, to know that his life mattered in the scheme of things. He still had to merge himself with some higher self-absorbing meaning in trust and in gratitude. If he no longer had God, how was he to do this? One of the first ways that occurred to him was the romantic solution. The self-glorification that he needed in his innermost nature, he now looked for in the love partner. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual and moral needs now become focused in one individual. In one word, the love object is God. Man reached for a thou when the worldview of the great religious community overseen by God died. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption and nothing else. I don't know if you caught the drift of what he was observing there, but he's saying culturally, when God died in our culture, when we'd sort of moved on from believing that there was any meaning to be found in that, the most obvious solution was a romantic partner. And what happened was all those things that we used to look for in God we are now looking for in an individual. And so we come at relationships with these God-sized expectations. The, all the things that we used to look for, for meaning, significance, identity, for purpose, redemption, are now focused on a relationship. And this explains why there's such a focus on it. There is a God-sized hunger with which we approach relationships. And it also explains the sense of disillusionment that's sometimes expressed culturally. For a culture that's so committed to the idea of finding the one, we also have this weird other dissonant note, which is a, a kind of a note of cynicism about relationships, and particularly around marriage. You might have heard some of these kind of one-liners. Marriage is not a word, it's a sentence, a life sentence. <laughs> All men are born free, but some of them get married. Classic. I never knew what true happiness was until I got married, and by then it was too late. When a man holds, you know, I can stop there. You get the idea. But the idea is this kind of a, a broad sort of cynicism about marriage. There's this, it's almost if you're single, you have to, but once you're there, you, you're almost meant to feel cynical about it. It's the same even subtly in like in soap operas or dramas. When a couple get married and they're in a stable relationship, they get relegated to the B story. They're uninteresting. And the only way to bring them back into the main story is to introduce like an affair or some kind of tragedy, and then they become interesting again. And so it builds in us subtly the idea that like, if you do finally get there, you're no longer interesting. Your life is no longer dramatic or important. And so it's a weird kind of contradiction. But it does make sense in terms of what Ernest Becker said, doesn't it? That if we approach it, relationships, with all the expectation that they're going to fulfill our lives like a transcendent God might, you can understand why that brings a certain energy to find a relationship, and yet once you're there, to feel a kind of disillusionment. 
This is what happens when a person takes the place of God. When we put all of our hopes and dreams and meaning and identity into them. No lover, no human being is qualified to that role and none can ever live up to those kind of expectations. And this is what he goes on to say. Ernest Becker writes this. He says, The failure of romantic love as a solution to human problems is so much a part of modern man's frustration. No human relationship can bear the burden of godhood. However much we may idealize and idolize him, the love partner, he inevitably reflects the earthly decay and imperfection. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults, of our feelings of nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. Needless to say, human partners cannot give this. When we approach relationships with that kind of weight on it, the only possible outcome can be a certain disillusionment. No human being can fulfill that kind of role. And that's why Jesus tells this very short parable that he tells. This is the shortest of all the stories that Jesus tells that we've looked at. He tells it all in a single line. And he says it in this way. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's a short story and a very simple one to understand in economic terms. A man is checking out a field. As he's looking around, he discovers that there's a treasure buried in that field. And the reason that this kind of would have resonated with Jesus' hearers is that, of course, in ancient Near Eastern culture, you didn't have banks. And so potentially, you could, if you had a fortune, bury it for safety. And then if the owner of that field died and never told anyone that it was buried there, that it actually could still be there and remain there. And so this was, this was obviously still a rare thing to happen, but it was entirely possible in that culture. And so a man checks out this field. He realizes that the value of the treasure in the field is worth more than everything that he possesses. And so he goes and sells everything that he has in order to get that field. Now, what's the point that Jesus is making? I mean, it's logical financially. If whatever you're buying is worth more than your current assets, it's worth swapping one for the other. But Jesus here isn't giving financial advice. He says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's saying, this is what it's like to have a relationship with God. It's to find a treasure that actually relegates everything else in life, to find something that would be worth more than anything else that you have. It's to find the thing that we're looking for, the sun in the center of our solar system, the thing around which everything else in life is meant to orbit, the thing that is big enough and large enough to hold everything else in orbit. Jesus is saying this is what it's like to find God. When we're looking for meaning and purpose and identity, we're to find it in Him. Because He says ultimately the story of the Bible is a story of a reunion. That we were created lovingly by a God who loves us. We weren't created by random forces. We're not a cosmic accident. We're not alone in a dark and unsympathetic universe. We were made by a loving Creator. And that relationship was broken when we chose to live with no reference to him, to live as though he did not exist and did not make us. And this is what the Bible calls sin, and it separates us from God. But the Bible continues the story to say that God is a loving God who wants us back in relationship with him. And he offers forgiveness and eternal life, the very things we're looking for in Jesus. And so what we find in him is everything we're looking for. 
is purpose and meaning and identity, is a story that we're connected to. Why is it that kids so often want to find parents that they've lost contact with? It's to find out who they are, to make sense of their life and their story. And Jesus is saying, we're like that. We're like God's lost kids. And that we find ourselves in the story that he tells us through his Bible and through Jesus. And in him we have a heavenly father who loves us and is welcoming us back into relationship with him. But along with this, we also get redemption. I don't know if you saw that comment that Becca made regarding what we're looking for in relationships. The idea that we're looking to be rid of all our faults. I think all of us, if we're honest, have a sense that we are deeply flawed. That there are some things about ourselves that we're glad that other people don't know and that we don't feel great about ourselves. And often when we come to a romantic relationship, our hope is this. We're like, look, if just one person out there thinks I'm perfect, then maybe I am. Or maybe that covers up for everything that I feel deeply flawed about. And yet that can never happen because no one can ever love us that perfectly. And even if they do, it doesn't deal with our issues. But Jesus says in the love of God, we actually find the forgiveness and redemption that we're looking for. And in God, he loves you enough to forgive you, to die for your sin and to make you new. And that so often this is what we're looking for in relationships and can't find it. So what Jesus is saying in, in telling the story of the treasure hidden in the field is that this is the thing that people are looking for. And it's the thing that then puts everything else in its right position. Again, like the solar system, it puts all the other planets back in their right orbit. That they can come in and out of our lives or closer or further in their orbital sort of run. But we have the, right, the main thing, the main thing in the middle, that is God himself. And this, so much tra- this, this transforms the way we approach relationships. See, without that, the idea of singleness or even being in a relationship has a kind of a, a high-stakes weight to it that it really shouldn't. Imagine in this way. Imagine you were told by a... Let's say it was like police actually informed you that a hit had been put out on you. For whatever... It's just a hypothetical. You don't need to go into the details. And for whatever other reason, they're not going to help you either. If that were the case, it would it would transform every small interaction throughout the day, wouldn't it? Because when you're at the petrol station and the, the, the attendant kind of looks sideways or whatever, you would suddenly feel like, do they know something? Is someone coming for me? As strangers walk across the street, they're not just strangers, you're wondering, is someone following me? It would, just, it would, change, the whole, it would change every small interaction in your life, wouldn't it? Because every innocuous interaction would suddenly become a high-stakes interaction. And when love is meant to take the place of God, it's almost like everything becomes high stakes, doesn't it? In, in that kind of situation, it, it puts you kind of on a high alert. Like if you're single, you're like, well, if I'm going to be single, then I'm going to miss out on what life's really about. And so I have, to, I have to make sure I'm always on the hunt for the one. And so every interaction becomes, could this person be that one? How are they responding to me? What am I like? How are they perceiving me? Everything feels high stakes. And not only that, but even once you, if you are actually in a relationship, then that too becomes high stakes. If this doesn't work out, well, what's that going to mean for me? Or what does that say about me? Everything just becomes at fever pitch. But if God is the center of your universe, it just drops everything down to its normal levels. Like again, if you were told in that situation that actually the hit was off, they'd called it, you know, again, not big on details in this illustration, you get the idea. But you are now safe 
Every interaction just becomes a normal interaction again. And in the same way, if you know that you have a relationship with the God of the universe, then there's just a certain level of peace that it can bring to whether you are single or in a relationship. It's no longer this high-stakes thing. You bring just a balance. And ironically, even with this, relationships is one of those things in life where strangely enough, wanting it too much is the thing that actually ruins it. And we know this, there are a few things like this in life. If you want sleep too much, you cannot fall to sleep. If you want to be original as an artist too much, you end up not being very original. And you see this at school or high school, if you really want to be popular and you want it too much, you won't be. It's strange, isn't it, that with relationships, that often wanting it too much can sometimes inadvertently either push people away, or even if you get in a relationship, you're expecting so much of the other person, you have God-sized expectations of them, that in the end they will never be able to live up to, and then in the end will crush both them and you. See, unless you have a relationship with God that satisfies the deepest longings of the heart and our deepest needs for meaning and purpose and identity, relationships will always be a thorn in our side. And so what do we do with this? Well, if you're here and you would not describe yourself as a follower of Jesus, can I just encourage you, if you have ever, I guess, resonated with any of these things, with a desire for a relationship that seems in some way out of proportion to what it should be, to ask the question, maybe it's the case that my heart is longing for something that can only find its satisfaction in God. C.S. Lewis, as he articulates with so many different subjects, nails it with this one also, when he says this, he says, most people, if they have learned, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, and no learning can really satisfy. I'm not now speaking of that which would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages, or holidays, or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we've grasped, or we've grasped that in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and the chemistry may have made a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. He goes on to say that if there are desires that I have that cannot be satisfied in this world, it must be the case that I'm not made for this world, that there is something beyond the here and now that we actually need and are deeply longing for. And I would encourage you to investigate that. As Anna mentioned before, we're running Alpha tomorrow night. That's at 7 o'clock at the church there. That's a great space if you're interested in diving deep into these questions and finding answers of actually doing that, and we'd love to have you along. But even with that, you can continue to join us on Sundays as we look at Jesus' life in the Gospel of John, the one who claims to be the very bread of life and to give us the water of life that we are longing and looking for. But I encourage you not to leave this question alone. And if you are here and you're a follower of Jesus, a believer, can I ask, do you believe this? 
that Christ is your all-satisfying joy. Because if so, it transforms whether you are single or in a relationship. See, in singleness, do you find yourself experiencing that kind of almost panic that actually if I don't find the one or a relationship, that I'll somehow be locked out of real life or a meaningful life? And that can be a horrible feeling to have. Or even if you are in a relationship, have you found yourself being increasingly or even overly critical of your partner? In both these ways, it may be because we've started to lose sight of how much we have in Jesus. And so we've started to put those expectations on a human relationship that no human relationship can possibly bear the weight of. And so I'd encourage you as we dive into this next season, that over these coming months in the lead up to Christmas, you'd make every effort to make Christ your all-satisfying joy. That if it's been the case that over this year, through busyness or distractedness, it's not that you've lost relationship with Jesus because you cannot, but it's almost like you've forgotten how much you have in Him. My prayer that over these coming months, it would just be a reminder of what we have in Christ Jesus. A love that cannot be taken away from us, a meaning that makes significance out of all of life, and the sun in our solar system around, every, around which everything else is called to orbit. I'm going to pray that this would be the case before we sing. Father, we praise you that you are treasure in heaven, that you are an all-satisfying joy. You are the thing that we are looking for in this life, and that so often our desires land on things in this world that cannot satisfy, and yet you alone can. So, Father, we know that our life, that life will bring us many pains and challenges, but we know that when our hearts are misaligned with yours, that it makes things so much harder and so much more painful. So, Father, we pray that you would deepen our trust in you and our love for you and our joy in you, that you might be glorified in your people. And, Father, if there's anyone here who is seeking and looking to find you, may you reveal yourself to them, that as we open your word, as we ask these questions through Alpha, that you would be revealing yourself to be a God who is not far or distant or a concept or an idea, but our Heavenly Father who is near and who loves us. Father, we pray all these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.